May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. To begin with a story, a married couple in their early 60s were celebrating their 40th wedding anniversary in a quiet and romantic little restaurant. Suddenly, a tiny yet beautiful fairy appeared on their table. She said, for being such an exemplary married couple, and for being loving to each other for all this time, I will grant you each a wish. The wife answered, oh, I want to travel around, my, around the world with my darling husband. The fairy waved her magic wand and poof, two tickets for the cruise ship Queen Mary, Queen Mary II appeared in her hands. The husband thought for a moment and said, Well, this is all very romantic, but an opportunity like this will never come again. I'm sorry, my love, but my wish is to have a wife 30 years younger than me. The wife and the fairy were deeply disappointed that a wish is a wish. So the fairy waved her magic wand and poof, the husband was 92 years old. <laughs> Our desires reveal a lot about us, don't they? A lot of who we really are. The husband was not at all what people thought he was. We've just heard the story of the call of Isaiah to be a prophet. Called to be a prophet to the kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom. Now Judah thought it was pretty cool. They thought they were pretty holy and a righteous kingdom. Their king stood in line with the Davidic, with David, and they worshipped in the true temple in Jerusalem, as opposed to those backsliding cousins up north who'd abandoned the Davidic kings and had set up their own places of worship, and now for all their sins were under serious threat from the Assyrian Empire. But Isaiah was called to be a prophet not to the north, but to the southern kingdom, Judah. Their leaders' desires for wealth and security at the expense of the poor, the immigrants, the orphans and the widows, and their northern neighbours, had revealed that they were not all they thought they were. Their desires, like the husband's wishes, like the husband's wish, had betrayed them. I wonder what our desires reveal about us. Wednesday is the start of Lent, and Lent is a time where we are able to reflect on exactly that question. What do our desires reveal about us? As I said in the pew sheet, the theme this morning in the readings is call. When I talk about call, I often think about what are we called to do. I think of in terms of doing something. And so Isaiah is called to prophesy to the southern kingdom, Peter, James, and John. I don't know what happened to Andrew. He gets kind of cut out of Luke. doesn't have much of a place at all. They were called to follow Jesus and to do what he says. I'm called to be a priest, to work as a priest. Bonnie is called to teach. Some people are called to do music work in the altar guild, run the AAW, work as vestry members, go to synod. All of those things we're called to do. But Isaiah 
Peter, James and John weren't just called to do something. In the readings we heard this morning, they were called to change their understanding of who they were. Isaiah was called to be a prophet. That involved a radical change in how he saw himself, how he saw his family, his community, the southern kingdom, and a radical change in what he desired. Because in reality, his desires weren't much different from the leadership of that kingdom. This call would also change how people would see him. It would change his relationships with everyone. He would no longer be such a welcome guest at any of the dinners. And the same is true for Peter, James and John. When they were called to be a disciple, they were called to leave everything. And we kind of slide over that line, but it's a really important line. Because it meant they were called to step out of their family, family networks. And those networks defined everything. It defined who they were, what they did with their lives, how they made their decisions, their priorities, their desires, all were bound up in those family networks. And the call to follow Jesus redefined those networks. It redefined everything about them. They were no longer the sons of their ancestors. First and foremost, they were disciples of Jesus. And the same is true of us. When we talk about our call in terms of doing things, we're missing the point, really. The point is, we are called to be, first and foremost. So who are we called to be? Last week, I talked about the patterns by which we understand the world and our lives, our interactions with people. And I used the four patterns suggested by Brian McLaren in his book, We Make the Road by Walking. So to remind you of what I said last week, I said that each of these patterns, which he describes as universal patterns, they can be seen all around the world, uh, have their own logic and so he said there are kind of three universal patterns or logic that can be seen everywhere that most people will choose one of to understand their world and their lives. So the first of these was the pattern of rivalry, where the cosmos is seen as a huge battlefield where the participants survive by competing and defeating and displacing and winning. And if we look through history and if we look around the world today, we can see that pattern at work. And I suggested that each of these patterns has an image of God that fits with this. And so the image of God that fits with that pattern is the image of God the victorious king. The second image, the second pattern that Brian McLaren offers is the pattern of compliance, where we understand the world to be controlled by rules, and our job is to understand those rules, to learn those rules, and to comply with those rules. And if we do that, all will be good, and when we don't do that, bad things happen. And the image of God that goes with that is God the judge. And again, we can see around the world, lots of people 
who understand the world in terms of those of that pattern of compliance. And then the last one was the pattern of meaningless mechanism. That we are just cogs in a larger mechanism, a meaningless mechanism. And the image of God for that is there is no God. And again, there are a lot of people who have that as their basic understanding of how the universe works. And then Brian McLaren says that there is a fourth pattern offered to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And this fourth pattern is the way, the pattern of God. And last week we said that that pattern is the pattern of love. And we, we spent quite a bit of time last week in our various groups, writing poetry, making collages, and having a discussion around what does that pattern, that logic of love mean. And the, the first place we started was uh, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Um, but, but if you look at the whole of the life the teaching, the actions, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you can see that pattern. So let's apply those patterns to our discussion about Paul. All of us use one of these patterns to understand our lives, whether we like it or not. We operate out of rivalry or compliance or meaningless mechanism. That's certainly how... Isaiah and Peter and James and John were operating. But they were called to a different pattern. They were called to see themselves differently and we are called to see ourselves differently. They were called to see themselves in light of a new pattern, the pattern of love. And so are we. That is the call of every Christian, to understand ourselves and our world in terms of God's love. But that is a lot harder than it sounds. And if we're honest enough and have a good look at our desires, they will show just how hard that is. Another aspect of call is that that is called into question in today's readings is that we often describe call as an individual thing. I know I do. I am called to be a priest. It's all about me. But actually, in these readings today, there was a communal aspect to them. The call of Isaiah is to be a prophet to the kingdom of Judah. It wasn't just about Isaiah. In fact, Isaiah's call was to remind Judah of their call as the southern kingdom. To remind them of who they are as the people of God. To remind the whole kingdom that they are to be a community, a society patterned after God's compassion and mercy and generosity, patterned after God's love. His call had social, political and economic consequences. And Jesus too, he called disciples, but they were called to be part of a community and he taught and modelled what communities would look like when they were modelled on love, modelled on compassion and generosity and mercy. And the same is true for us. We are called to model what communities would look like when modelled on love, modelled on compassion, mercy and generosity. Yesterday, we as a nation remembered and commemorated the signing of Te Tiriti o Waitangi, which is 
as I've said before, an intrinsically Anglican document. It was petitioned for, among others, by Anglican missionaries. And in London, Anglican humanitarians worked with the government to get the government to agree to the concept of a treaty and what the bounds of that treaty were. People who drew up and translated that treaty were mostly Anglicans. Anglicans were at the forefront, the Anglican missionaries, of persuading Māori that this treaty was a good idea. And many of those who signed the treaty were either Anglican or uh, were seriously heavily influenced by the teaching of the Anglican missionaries. Their understanding of some of the language used in the Māori version of the Treaty of Waitangi was based on how the missionaries had taught those words in relation to Scripture. And that treaty was then taken by, among others, Anglican missionaries around Aotearoa, New Zealand, to invite other Māori chiefs to sign as well. And many of those chiefs had already come in contact with Anglican missionaries, which is why they listened to them. Again, they had heard their teaching around Scripture, and they agreed to that concept. Our fingerprints are all over the Treaty of Waitangi. And that is why the treaty is at the heart of our constitution as a church. But if we read the story of the Treaty of Waitangi in this land, we can also say that Anglicans played their role in having it pushed to one side. Like the husband, our desires let us down. Too often we lost our calling, lost our identity and God's love. We adopted other patterns, patterns of rivalry, where Māori were seen as opponents, as rivals, as enemies, where we desired what they had and more, and we worked to compete with and to defeat and to displace. And so much of the talk around treaty settlement still uses that language today from those who oppose it. And others were shaped by patterns of compliance where we imposed our rules and then meted out punishment when those rules were not complied with. And again, so many of those who oppose treaty settlements today still echo those patterns as well. But today, we are reminded that we are called to be more, that we are called to live by another pattern, we are called to join Isaiah, Peter, James and John to be a reflection of God's love, generosity and mercy. The Treaty of Waitangi is ours. And we are called to stand with Isaiah, to invite our nation to be more than we have been, to honour the dream of those who first conceived of and signed this document. A document that offered a dream about how our country and how the peoples who live in here will relate to each other. So, as we prepare for Lent and as we stand on the other side of Waitangi Day, may we again be driven by that dream. A dream that we will be patterned on God's love.